Welcome back to the show, everyone. Up today is interviews with authors. But first, a final reminder for those thinking about applying to the MFA program here at SIUE. Small class sizes, a community-based learning component, and award-winning faculty help make the MFA at SIUE unique. Offering concentrations in both fiction and poetry, the MFA at SIUE allows students to pursue interests in literary publishing, creative writing pedagogies, and contemporary literature. Interested students are able to apply for a graduate assistantship which includes a tuition waiver and monthly teaching stipend. Our priority deadline is February 1st. Visit siue.edu forward slash apply to find out more. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to Writers in the World. With me today is the author of the poetry collections Overpass and Uncontainable Noise, and the chapbook, Murder on Gasoline Lake, which won the New American Press Contest in 2007, is writer Steve Davenport. Professor Davenport, thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Grant. And so uh, we'll just jump right in. There are a number of topics I'd like to cover during our conversation, but I think a natural place to start would be talking about your history with SIUE and this area. I know place is important to your aesthetic. Um, on your website, which is GasolineLake.com. Visitors are greeted with the message on the home screen, quote, here's the deal. Gasoline Lake is American bottom property I own because it resides within me. Can you speak a little bit uh, about what it means to you to be from the American bottom, to be from this area, to have gone to SIUE? And I know that's a lot of questions at once, but... Okay, well, I'll try to manage it. Uh, Edwardsville is not technically on American bottom because Edwardsville's up a bluff. American Bottom is um, a phrase that's a name that I would say 95% of the people from American Bottom have never heard. They could see it on a sign down near the Kaskaskia River. They might stumble upon it at a, a website where some archaeological and uh, work has been done. Uh, but American Bottom is the uh, floodplain that stretches from just around Alton down past East St. Louis. It uh, contains much of Madison and St. Clair counties. Um, and really, uh, when I was writing the second book of poems, which I, the first book of poems had nothing to do with Madison County, which is my home county, or St. Clair, or American Bottom. I'm not even sure I knew the phrase American Bottom when I wrote the poems in the first book. Uh, but the second book needed to be about uh, my place, which had become my, my, I had returned to sort of emotionally and even intellectually to Hartford, Illinois, which is on the bottom, uh, sitting between the canal and the oil refineries. My birth home is there. Uh, that's pure American bottom. And as the poems of the first book were taking shape, uh, I realized it was a Madison County, St. Clair County project and American bottom just uh, appeared before my eyes while doing research, and it was a blessing. Hmm. But Edwardsville, uh, like part of Collinsville, anything that goes up bluff, anything that's above the flood floodplain, Alton's above the floodplain because of all the bluffs. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the bottom. 
Right. That's a phrase I, I remember you using um, and look, doing some, some prep for our interview on your website, that phrase off bottom. Like, you know, it's, it's by the bottom, or, uh, but it's just up. It's elevated. Right. Um, how about SIUE? Did you want to talk a little bit about? Well, I did my undergraduate work here uh, for, for a very long time. It took me at least five and a half years to get my undergraduate degree. I was a lazy student, a student who was unfocused, who would... Uh, you know, sometimes have problems attending class. I quit a couple of times, worked in the flour mill in Alton, uh, which is uh, which was then called uh, Peavy Flour Mill. Uh, that's also, I. that's kind of on the bottom because Peavy Flour Mill is where when the flood, when the river floods, it always floods that part of Alton because it's lying low. Uh, that's part of my emotional home, I guess, but it's not... It's not filled with gasoline like the refineries are. Uh, but I, from, I would say, PV Flour Mill to SIUE, uh, stretching through Bethalto, which is where I spent most of my time growing up, which is up off the bottom, which is why my parents moved out of Hartford up there, because there's land available to build a house. That's up off the bottom also. So you don't smell Hartford, for instance, when you're... In Bethalto, you don't smell Hartford when you're in Alton. But if you grew up smelling Hartford, as bad as it might smell to people driving through, it smells like home to me, and it mm -hmm. smells like money. Yeah. SIUE, I did my undergraduate here. I um, then worked for a year at the flour mill. I had a teaching degree to teach high school. I was offered a, an assistant wrestling coach job at Belleville East, and there was going to be a teaching job, high school teaching job. I had a certificate and the teaching job dis was pulled back uh, because a, a teacher had come back from pregnancy leave and wanted her job back so she certainly had the right to that and she did and because that job wasn't offered to me uh, that's when I went to the flour mill and that's when I came back to SIUE and got into the master's program mm -hmm. two years of that by then I was starting to become a good student uh, I was really invested in and getting better at uh, writing. And then I worked for four years, started off one, we were in the quarter system then at SIUE, one quarter at a time, teaching basic writing. Office in the basement of uh, Rendleman, later here in Peck on the first floor. I did that for four years, directed writing, uh, basic writing program for a year, but gave myself a, uh, I realized by then, that I, I couldn't make a career out of quarter by quarter, year mm -hmm. by year contracts teaching basic writing. So I uh, told myself that by the end of the fourth year, I'd, I'd do something else. And if I could get into the PhD program somewhere, I would do that. Never with the idea that it would lead to a job, but just with the idea that it would, I would learn things, you know, get a merit badge. Right, yeah. And so I left Edwardsville 45 and a half years ago uh, with my, you know, years of years here. But I was here so long, my friends thought there should be a tree named after me or a rock or something. Oh, well, that might still happen, yeah. <laughs> we'll sure. see. Um, well, that's great. So switching gears a little bit to talk more about your writing, um, I'm... Something I always like to get into with 
with writers like yourself that write across uh, form, genres, mediums, right? even like the Gaslin Lake is its own sort of thing in my opinion, just that collect that collection online. Um, I, I'm wondering, how do you move from poetry to, to essay to other forms of writing? Do you sort of follow a voice? Does a certain story reveal itself to you at a certain point? How do you make those decisions? Can you just speak a little bit about writing across genre and forms? Yeah, I can. There are a lot of questions there, and I will probably ramble as I search through the thoughts that will, you know, come along. But That's great. I, I really only ever took two workshop classes that I can remember. They were both as an undergrad, one in poetry, one in fiction. I was much better in the poetry workshop. The fiction workshop, I was pretty abysmal. Uh, I didn't read enough, hadn't read enough. Just like my students at U of I or who will tell me in class, you know, they're creative writing majors, and they'll say, you know, but I don't read. And I'll say, well, that's not good. Well, neither did I. And so I took a couple of workshops, uh, did not go into an MFA program, did, you know, did no workshopping, had no mentor, no one ever there to tell me I was a poet or a fiction writer. Nobody, you know, I was not in that poetry workshop over there, that fiction workshop across the hall. I was just a guy over the years, really from my, I would say from my undergraduate experience, but especially my MA experience, when I decided what I really wanted was just to learn things. And I wanted, and maybe I'm making this up now looking back, but I wanted to get better at writing sentences. So I, I think that I never really, I still don't think of myself as a poet. I think of myself as a writer who can do just about anything because I feel I put in so much time on the sentence. And which is another way of saying, you've already used the word in your question, voice. I just, I remember living in an apartment off campus here at Edwardsville, and I, back when, way before the internet, when I had a big typewriter, and I would uh, purposely write letters to friends that were pages long, just because I was working on my voice. And they would sometimes write me back and just say, please, would you please quit doing that? You know, because they didn't know how to respond. And I said, I, it's essentially I'm journaling, but out in public, you know? And I was just working on my voice. So that by a certain time, when I was getting the PhD at U of I, and I was, again, not the best scholar by far. I, I couldn't keep myself in the library long enough. But it became apparent to me pretty quickly in grad school that though many of my friends were better prepared than me, just like they were in the MA program at SIUE, I, I could hold my own writing sentences. Mm. And, uh, and it was really when I started to publish literary scholarship when someone would say, a journal would say, yeah, we would love to pay, publish this article. You know, it's smart and well-written, but that one sentence on page 13, does it have to be that long? And I would think, yeah, I wrote the whole thing <laughs> so I could write that one sentence. 
And that's when I realized, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I should quit quit writing literary scholarship and yeah. try to write something else. Yeah. And so I started in poetry because it was easy every morning to work on a poem. But I found my success just as quickly uh, writing nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, by the murder on Gasoline Lake, the one that got me all the attention was only the second essay I ever wrote that wasn't literary scholarship. You know, yes. and it was just going to be a seventy-five word paragraph with an opening sentence that I kind of sort of that alluded to Richard Hugo with the word "say," and. Those 75 words became 750 words, and then those 750 words became 7,500 words. And it was just all voice. Yeah. I mean, it's just sound over sense. I was, was going to ask you yeah. about, about yeah. that quote, if that's I still mean, the mantra. The most, well, yeah, I mean, you have to make sense. I mean, unless you're Lewis Carroll, you write Jabberwocky, and you purposely, you know... There's nothing experimental about my, my writing that I could really be purely sound over sense. But I, 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 sound could carry, make its own sense. And sound, I think, is what I do well. Uh, it's driven by it's the sentence. I write sentences. Right. Some of them just end up as poems. Some as fiction. Some as nonfiction. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, you know, to our listeners out there that are younger writers, I think that's really sound advice. And um, one of the faculty members here, Jeff Schmidt, was sort of giving our workshop here that same message that sometimes a writer, or at least a young writer, at least in our workshop, can get sort of carried away thinking about this bigger idea. And, you know, they want these... They want to write to those moments, and they want to set these things in place, you know, on a plot level, character level, whatever. But it really is about the sentence. I mean, you can't get to that big reward at the end if you've not done right. uh, the work leading up to it. Yeah, I can't speak to how other writers write. I do know how I'll, I'll listen to fiction writers who'll say they they know they know that the, the opening scene. And they know that they're they're writing toward this other scene, but Jeff Schmidt, for instance, I read I just the other, I think a week or two ago, I read his collection. Is it uh, it plays with the Hemingway title in our time? What I forget the name of the. I I've, I've read anyway, Write Your Heart I, Out by yeah. him, and that's yeah. But I I told him in an email or on Facebook or somewhere that I tell my students at, at U of I that. The most important page in fiction is, is the next page. The most important page in poetry is the page you're on. And there are certain... Valerie Vogren's uh, Shebang, which I just finished, she's masterful at, in that novel anyway, at getting people to go to the next page. I want to know what happens to those characters. And it's beautifully written and paced. But I, I very much feel that Val's writing in that book... The next page is the most important page. In Jeff's work, at least in that collection, he's very much a, a, a writer who ha has, has it both ways because it's so densely poetic and it's so thick and rich, you might find yourself luxuriating 
in those sentences and in that language on a given page, which makes makes this fiction very literary, mm. you know, and 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 it 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 doesn't disprove what I say to my students in fiction. The next, the most important page is the next page because there are always people who live between poetry and fiction. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that collection would be a perfect example. In my case, it's it's the problem with my fiction is that I I struggle with. Because I have no prep, probably no preparation workshop. Uh, you know, I I'm so voice driven that I'll sometimes forget about characters. I'll sometimes forget about the next page because I'm caught in a sentence sequence or pattern, and I'm luxuriating on the page, and then I can't get to the next page. Right, and you know that can be. I mean, at least for me, if I get if I feel that a certain sentence or voice or idea starts to take the draft in a different direction, some, I don't know, I think that's a natural tension and a challenge of writing, which is to understand, you know, if, is this, am I going down a completely different path and, it, and it's going to lead to a different story or a different narrator or something like that? Or is this, or, or, do, or am I, um, you know, getting away from what initially brought me to this story in the first place? I just... I think that is an interesting tension. Yeah. Um, and one for me personally is, yeah, like I said, it's just a challenge because I, I don't know, as a younger writer, I'm not sure what to try. I don't know what to trust quite yet right. sometimes. Well, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't do much of writing as discovery and fiction. I, I think I always know from the start whether it's a poem or it's nonfiction or it's fiction. I don't think I've ever jump track on anything. Really? That's really interesting. Uh, now, it, it could be because you know, I'm very much a project-driven writer. In the second book, for instance, which is about, that uses the rust belt of American bottom as a way to talk about damage that's economic, environmental, uh, personal, uh, medical damage. I use a, a friend that I grew up with who really the, the whole collection came from her when she told me one night uh, we had reconnected since high school. A couple of decades perhaps had passed and she, because of Facebook or the internet, she found me at U of I. She had gotten married young to a serviceman. She had moved overseas. We lost touch. She found me. We started to use email to sort of hang out together. We were best friends late in high school. And she worked various jobs, sort of connected the medical industry and the, basically in Madison County. And one day she emailed me and said, uh, by this time Facebook was around, and said she had breast cancer. And then said, not too long after that, said, and it's metastatic breast cancer, and I'm angry, and it's not, it's, it was not in her nature to get angry publicly, but she said, if I get angry on Facebook, people will either form prayer chains, or they'll try to hug me, and I, I want to be, if I want to be angry, I just want to be angry. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I can, I can be angry for you. Yeah. I, can, I can say, I'll, I'll say anything. On Facebook, right, or with our friends about 
anger, and I said, so I said, so feed me some medical information about breast cancer. I won't name you, I said, uh, but I'll do something. I'll write. So it began as a nonfiction project, which is available online through a NPR station up in Chicago, WBEZ. Uh, but it very quickly, it I realized I wanted to use it in poetry too, and so I would have a first line, and I knew it was poetry. I knew it was cancer, breast cancer, or I knew it was other forms of damage on the bottom. Uh, but I always knew. I always know what what when I'm doing nonfiction, it's not fiction. When I'm doing poetry, it's poetry. But it all is me. Nobody else can do it. It's my voice. Exactly. And that's what I think singers aspire to when you, at least the ones I like, when I hear their voice, I know it's them. Right. Yeah. And so that's what I aspire to as a writer. That's, so, I mean, and I... And I don't think that's good no, advice that's... for all writers, right? Because, you know, it's just that there's some filmmakers who make a variety of different films and you don't know that director made all those different films and that's remarkable but there are other directors let's say like Alfred Hitchcock and you know it's Alfred Hitchcock right and I've seen right. the camera or, or because his name is bigger than the movie title sure right? exactly and so I think I've always aspired to, to do that to have my voice lead oh, that's, that's really interesting but I don't know if that's good advice for everybody else that's just how I do it well I mean um, again, yeah, it's like we can't, or I can't speak for, you know, other writers out there, but it just brings up an interesting, um, I don't want to keep using the word tension or, uh, again and again, but just gets me thinking about the workshop experience in general. And I do, I kind of had a follow up and you don't have to answer it because I have a, I have a different question I want to ask you, um, just in terms of you sort of felt like as, as a writer, you always had that that knowledge around a piece that you knew, you know, from line one or from the idea what, what it was going to maybe fit into um, or what form um, or if there was a switch that happened. And I don't know if you have an answer to that yeah. or not. But well, I, I, I have an easy, an, an easy answer that I was freshly divorced and 40, I'm trying to think exactly, 41 years old, I think sitting in uh, an apartment over the Christmas holiday in Decatur, Illinois, where I was teaching on year contracts at Milliken. I had all the time in the world. I had been married previously to a woman who had a daughter I helped raise that occupied a lot of my time. But when that divorce occurred and she went north with her mother, I was in that apartment and I just want, and I always thought of myself as a writer because of my SIUE experience. And I thought, tomorrow's January 1st, 1995, I think it was. And it's time to put up or shut up. I sensed that I wasn't going to really make anything of my literary life as a literary scholar, even though I did interview a couple of years later at SIUE and didn't get a job as a scholar, I knew two years before that that where I was heading or where I wanted to head as a writer. And so I just said the next morning, you'll read a poem, 
over to the right of your laptop or computer, you'll read a poem. To the left of your laptop or computer, you'll read a poem, take a drink of coffee, and write a poem. It was, and I wrote some crap, uh, but it, it was just me. And I had all the time in the world, if you consider a month between semesters, yeah. all the time in the world, which I did. No social life, no anything, just me in that apartment. By two, three years later, I've met someone, we've gotten married, we're starting to have daughters. I'm starting to write all the time, both fiction, no, mostly poems, but there was still a little, I was starting to venture into very literary fiction. And, and, and nonfiction. And I, when the daughters came, that clarified everything because I didn't have all that time in the world. So for instance, after the Millican gig was over with, and I go back to Illinois, it's probably 1998 okay. or nine, I'm holding our first, when there's still a landline in the apartment, I get a phone call because I had sent a proposal for an essay, a liter piece of literary scholarship for an anthology in American literature that I did not want to write, but I was holding a daughter and I needed a full-time job. And I was an adjunct at U of I, back at U of I. And this woman says to me on the phone, I read your proposal you write beautifully. I would love for you to, to write this essay for this anthology. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't really. I mean, down deep, I thought I would really just rather write other things. Mm -hmm. But I've got to, I got to find a tenure track job. Then she said, but I want you to know that you sent a proposal. Uh, no, no. I must have. Something I sent, her husband was doing an anthology oh, okay. uh, of essays. His was called How I Wrote My Dissertation. And I did something that got his interest. And that's what it was. He read the proposal. He liked my voice and my writing. That he told his wife, when she got me on the phone, to ask her if I would write an essay for his anthology. And I was dumbstruck. You know, because suddenly I had two people on the phone who wanted me to write essays. One I did not want to write, one I hadn't even envisioned. And I paused and she said, so I take that as a yes, that you're interested in this project. And I said, yes. And she said, and let's be honest here, you're not going to write my essay now, are you? <laughs> I said, oh, sure I will. And she said, don't lie to me. And I said, okay, no, I'm not. I'll write his. And that was the first essay I ever wrote. That, that never project never got completed. It ended up in a literary journal in New Orleans. And they said, we're going to nominate it for a Pushcart Prize. Wow. It didn't win anything. It didn't get any attention. But, no, but I realized that I was sort of free. Yeah. Not just poetry, which was at that point hit and miss for me. But I'd swung the bat one time. When somebody asked me to play, and it did well, and you know, a little bit later I wrote Murder on Gasoline Lake, and they got me more attention, and then I became the nonfiction editor for Ninth Letter at U of I, mm -hmm. 
which also accelerated my understanding of creative nonfiction, which at the time was a genre most people didn't even right. understand. And yeah. I think it's a good place for all writers to play creative nonfiction, especially poets, uh, because it'll force poets to to move out to take their their sense of economy out into an open field to see how it works. Ah, yeah, like a like stretching stretching yeah. yourself, in stretching a and finding way. finding different places for your voice. Right. Uh, but I don't even remember your original question now. I mean, I that was a great <laughs> response. Um, I had. Some other follow-ups, but you sort of um, you answered a lot of them. Uh, I, I, like a few of the things that you said, I wouldn't mind revisiting. Just that the process that you had on that break in between the semesters, where you had the poem on the left side, poem on the right side, and you just then you went in for yours. Because then there was no internet, and I had to drive from Decatur either to Springfield or to Champaign. There was a bookstore that had books of poetry by. Living poets. Now, understand, I had a PhD, and my education at, at SIUE, which was excellent. I mean, my the education in the MA program was excellent for me as a writer, as a thinker. It was on the quarter system, so I tended to end up in the novel. Wasn't back in the quarter system? I think at SIUE, the novel was not the best laboratory for close reading. Poetry was the better laboratory for close reading because there weren't enough weeks in a semester. If you try to teach Moby Dick in a 10-week quarter, you've eaten up half, your, half the course. Sure. You pretty much have to call the course Herman Melville or Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. um, so now I'm going to forget now where we, where we were. It's talking about your process? And, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, so, so I would go to Champagne, and I would, and I would get a copy of, I think it was Poets and Writers, and I would just start reading around the ads and looking at things, thinking, I know I've got voice, I know I've got voice, now this is previous to the explosion of all the writing, but I know I can write, all my friends tell me I can write sentences, but I need to see what poetry looks like on the page, because it's been a long time since I was an assistant editor at SIUE, with, at Southwester, mm -hmm. you know, which I did as an undergrad, which taught me a lot. But then I was working the graveyard years, for the MA and the PhD program. That's when you worked the graveyard. Mm -hmm. I needed to find the mall of living writers. Right. So I'd purchase collections of poetry. Uh, Sharon Olds, um, uh, Carl, uh, what's his name? He teaches at Wash U. Oh. Uh, I can't think of his name, but he was a young poet at the time, and I got a couple of his, David Wojan. I would set these books down, and I would just simply read, read, and then say, okay, write. But uh, I, I, it wasn't until, it really wasn't until I remembered something that a uh, $10 a pop Catholic marriage counselor, I'm not Catholic, but my ex-wife was, that we went to, he wanted me to, because she was always, she had been in therapy and in counseling, and I never had been in any kind of counseling, because I was always sort of even keeled and uh, happy, but that marriage was less so, and so... I was never angry enough, I guess, or talked enough in therapy, 
counseling, marriage counseling. So he said, why don't you, you need to go out in the country road and scream and let it out. So I'm writing these poems, I, and I'm struggling to find out what, what am I even writing about? I, I can't write another poem about Cat, that original poem from when I was an undergrad, driven by sound. I need to, what am I writing about? I didn't know what I was writing about. And then suddenly I went, oh, I could write about that bad marriage. I could write about it and think about what he meant when he said go out and scream. Yeah. Because I told him at the time, I can't scream. I don't scream. It would be impossible for me to go somewhere and make this containable form I live in explosive. Right. You know? By this time, I'm in that apartment. I've met a, the woman who will become my wife and the mother of our many daughters. And I'm teaching a Millican. And I have a back room where I, I sat. And I sat there before I met her. And I sat there after I met her. But it was only when I thought to myself, why don't I try to write a line of 12 syllables in a sonnet form? And that's the only rule I'll give myself. 12 syllables, 14 lines. Because I was trying to think of a contained body and write toward different ways of exploding the form or packing the form with so much energy and language. Uh, and I'll make the subject the bad marriage. Never really thinking ahead to whether it would be published whether I was violating any privacy issues. I said, a dude writing in my Your back, room? back room. And I exploded out of the back room when the first line of 12 syllables came to me so easily. Uh, beginning with, I think, that same word from the beginning of Gasoline Lake from Richard Hugo, say... Uh, I, I, I'm not sure about that. But I remember I, I, I sort of leapt out of the back room after the first line came to me. And it was the eureka moment. I knew right then I'd found it. I'd not just found what I was writing about, but more importantly, I'd found how I was going to write about it. And so I leap out of the back room and say to my then girlfriend, you know, eureka, I've done it. And I yell the 12 syllables at her, the line, and she looks at me, and I run back in, and the poem just, word for word. I don't think I may have changed one word, and that was only for the book, mm -hmm. years later. Okay. And poem after poem became, I mean, there might have only been eight of them, because I wasn't thinking about a book. Right. I just was trying to, to grab, and I, that's when I knew I, I'd done it. I'd found my voice in poetic form. Drove my girlfriend crazy because she would say, I would say, hey, do you want to go out and eat? And she'd say, yeah, let's go get Italian. And I would go on my blue jeans, and I'll do it on the table there. I'd go, yeah, let's go get Italian. That's only seven syllables, I'd say. <laughs> I need 12 syllables. And so I would just, a little OCD, you were living it. Yeah. Uh, I would do it on my pant legs so she would try not to hear me, and she'd say, please quit. Wow. And, but for years, and then 
it grew and grew, and so most of the poems in Uncontainable Noise, and in fact, the whole project is about marriage, but they're not all those explosive sonnets, uh, but that was, that was it when I found the, the form, you know, the how, right. and it happened to fit nicely with, with the, uh, the content, and all the poems were about packing as much energy as I could, and often monosyllabic lines, just one-syllable words, pack, 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 and I'd shave and shave and push and contain. And then, guess what? Almost immediately, like the Iowa Review, good places started taking them. But I thought, I didn't think, again, about whether I should be, that should be a, a topic that could be made public. Right. You know, and then the internet came along. And then I'm sitting in my office at the University of Illinois, and the angriest of all of those sonnets, which had been published in thin air, a tiny lit mag in the mountains of northern Arizona, how would anybody ever know about it? Uh, a student of mine at U of I, who had gone to the MFA program at Minnesota, I think he'd left by that time, he sends me an email and says, Steve, I read, I read this poem of yours. I said, how could you read this a poem of mine? He said, on the internet. I said, poems are on the internet? They said, yeah, people have websites. They have websites? I didn't even know. And he said, yeah, on this happy goddamn goodbye marriage bottle sonnet or whatever it was, he said, it's right here in front of me. And I went, oh, I... A lot of cussing, like, oh my, oh my God. And the police never showed up. My ex never showed up. Maybe because it's poetry and nobody reads it. And so that's that collection is what won that the first book prize. I got the first book published. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I, I mean, do you still, because I've read in a lot of writing books, um, I've read from different authors that are writing about writing and, you know, this has been in more, I think, like creative nonfiction type writing, you know, advice books. And, and they've said, you know, the, that type of preoccupation, uh, sometimes it's not like, it's not accurate. And I don't know if I buy that or not, that by sort of exposing something maybe unfavorable about another person that they're automatically going to be, you know, coming at you, uh, wanting to fight tooth and nail to get that off the off the web or wherever it is some of these authors and i'm blanking on some of the names of these books but they've they've made comments like you know some people will maybe not even recognize themselves in in the in the work or they're going to just be happy to have been given space on the page positive or negative uh even if it's you know depicting them in in a quote-unquote negative way that that most people still won't find offense in that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I... I yeah, I think it's a case-by-case case basis. I have, a, right. I have a friend, Sue William Silverman, who became famous when she wrote a, a book about uh, sexual abuse on her father. And she would say to me, as she has said to me, when I talked to her about murder on Gasoline Lake, where I spilled some 
family secrets that, you know, you some writers have an obligation. It's their material too. When I told using the second person, never saying I in Murder on Gasoline Lake, when I told the story of a family murder, my family's, extended family's murder-suicide in Hartford that took place when I was late in high school and really only became material for me when I was an undergraduate advisor at U of I and I got a call from one of my sisters that a cousin of mine had killed himself in uh, probably Roxana, that area, yeah. Wood River, Roxana. And he was a pretty violent guy. Uh, this, even this interview is probably going to get me in trouble. And uh, he was the son, uh, the product of the murder-suicide I came to write about. But at that point, I was researching a lot of the uh, environmental damage in my old neighborhood, the northeast corner of Hartford, and where basically his mother and father lived right there. My mother and father lived right there. Uh, unfortunately for him, his father, uh, you know, was violent and took his mother's death, took his mother's life when she was trying to divorce him, and then with a sawed-off shotgun, and killed himself. And uh, that boy grew up to be violent like his father and then killed him himself. And when my sister called me, I think that's when a lot of the emotion I had, I had sort of repressed over the decades because my father felt uh, culpable. He felt like he was the, the good cousin who was supposed to keep bad things from happening. And, and I remember him crying at the funeral. And, and uh, so I, I often tell my students at U of I, and I'll use the word stuff for another four-letter word that begins with S, and I'll say bad stuff is bad stuff. The bad stuff could be good stuff for writers. And I realized at that moment that I had something to write about, and it took place in the dirt that I grew up standing on. It was saturated with petroleum product, four million gallons of gasoline under the ground in my old neighborhood in Hartford. All those houses are being bought up now by industry and they're saying well, what they're going to do when they finally buy them all they're waiting for people to to either say or admit to themselves they'll never be able to resell those properties or people die off and the families can't recoup anything so it's it's a wasteland that little part of the neighborhood is and that's place and that started frankly my returning to siue and hartford just driving around siue was beautiful and up, up off the bottom and then I just go down the bottom to what looked like Escape from New York if it was the movie Escape from New York if it was nighttime with all the but it was the you know the chemicals would fill my gills from childhood and make me feel full again and right. it was great but it carried all the bad family stuff and so that that essay got me wonderful attention uh, the only phone call I ever got after that initial one where somebody called me actually on the phone to say they wanted to publish it to beat another magazine to it. Mm -hmm. That was Murder on Gasoline Lake. Mm -hmm. But then I got another phone call after it was published as a book. And that was my mother oh. who called and said, uh, a cousin of yours wants to talk to you about this essay. And it was uh, one of the family members. Mm -hmm. 
and wanted to know, basically wanted to know, didn't know the book industry, didn't know where it was, but didn't want her children, which would be the grandchildren, I guess, didn't want her children to stumble upon it in the Barnes and Noble. And I didn't apologize for doing it. All the moisture left my mouth as I walked around my neighborhood with one of my first cell phones mm -hmm. in the dark, talking and trying to figure out what it was I had done. Did I have a right? Uh, did I violate some family oath? But I was comforted by the idea and saying, no, no, it's just in a chapbook. It's just in a literary magazine. Your kids are never going to see this until they, unless they seek it out. Yeah. I have no idea, uh, you know, extended families don't, don't always stay in touch with each other. And so that was my last bit of contact with that part of my family. Now, I will say that just within the last month from that same neighborhood, a cousin of mine has come back into my life and uh, said that uh, he'd read it. Hmm. I don't even know how he heard of it. He was living in a completely another another yeah. state. I hadn't seen him, you know, for a decade or two. Wow, that one. So, so I think we, I, I don't advise my students at U of I in creative writing classes to go tell family secrets. I just say that, that uh, you'll probably hit a certain point in, in your maturation when you'll, instead of, looking out into the cosmos for material about some world of fantasy you want to create, you realize you're standing on dirt you know better than anybody else, mm -hmm. and there'll be something to write about there. Yeah. And, yeah, so... Uh, I feel like that's such a trend with writers. I mean, and I could be off, but just this return to, to maybe a place or to a family or to a set of relationships that are sort of deeply ingrained or part of, you know, the, the growing up, pro the adolescent, a pivotal time. And I, and I don't feel like often that that is the first choice when this person, this random person, I'm talking myself, right? If I'm talking about my own personal experience as a writer, it took me, I feel like, uh, some practice before I even turned that way. I don't know. I mean, does your writing take place in uh, your, the Kankakee Bradley Bourbon A area? Now it does. Now it that, does. My thesis will, and right. um, that's my big project. But I've only recently um, started producing stuff that deals with, with home or with um, family. And, of, of course, it's all fictionalized. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, why that is. Because um, it sounds like that's sort of like what happened in your situation. Yeah, I mean, my, the first book of poems... I, I can point one reference in there that would reference specifically a location between here and, let's say, Champaign-Urbana. Mm -hmm. Second book is all Madison, St. Clair County. Mm -hmm. Third book, I have a third book of poems, Brew Song, uh, coming out next month. Next month being February 2020 with uh, Stephen F. Austin, State University Press. And I... In, Thinking about this interview, I thought to myself, okay, wait a minute, where do those poems take place? And it really is hit, hit or miss. I, I was asked to come read at Richland Community College in Decatur, uh, where that house I was talking about that I sat in and wrote the first poems, and 
I had learned from many, many readings that the kind of poems that, that appeared in uh, my first two collections didn't do as well in the air as they do on the page mm. because they're too short and too contained and don't allow an audience time enough to figure out their role as auditor, as listener, right. that I, for instance, thought to myself, okay, I, I need to write longer poems. I want to give up form so I can write, see if I can trust my voice to find its way in longer forms. And so I would write a poem about Decatur, mm -hmm. using Decatur, or this, you know, very specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, Decatur is no longer in the title, but it began being called something like Dear Decatur, Dear... 700 West Main, Dear Lynn, named my wife. Uh, so there are a few in there that yeah. specifically rooted the place, but oddly, I spent 22 years growing up in Bethalto, Illinois, and, not, and I love the place, and I'm emotionally tied to it. I drive through it too, but not one poem, not one word I have ever written, fiction, nonfiction, or poetry, I don't believe, has ever had anything to do with Bethalto, Illinois. Mm. So though I preach it, I preach it to my U of I students who, who are 18 and look at me like I'm crazy that their neighborhood would be of interest to anyone, uh, I'm much more likely to kind of be Edwardsville or even Alton yeah. or definitely Hartford right. or Champaign-Urbana or the Missouri Ozarks mm. than it is Bethalto, and I have no idea why. I used to tell my parents that's because nothing bad ever happened there. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I blame them. As a, when I was a young, an undergrad at, U of, at SIUE, when a couple of professors told me I could really write, I was not completely joking when I'd come home and tell my parents that... Uh, they had perhaps ruined my life as a writer because nothing bad had ever happened to me. Huh. And they would look at me like, we should slap you right now. <laughs> you know? And so it was really the divorce and the horrible pollution in northeast, northeastern quadrant of Hartford yeah. that made me go, I have experienced damage. Yeah. I do get damage. And so that's largely what I write about right. is damage. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I know, I don't know if you're saying that tongue-in-cheek in terms of what you were talking about to your parents, but there's, I feel like there's a shred of truth in that. I mean, if you think about fiction or, or anything, a uh, piece of writing, if, if it's just good the whole time. Right. Start well, what they it. should have said to me, and they might have, if they had been English majors, they would have said, you know what, Steve, uh, before we slap you, uh, how about you use your imagination? Right. There you go. Yeah. I want you to use your imagination and imagine damage. Mm. Imagine, you know, uh, whatever you need to imagine that will create tension, inform mm. uh, and inform and content. Uh, didn't occur to me. Right. <laughs> As you wait around, waiting for the hardships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's um, that's really interesting. Um, I want to maybe switch up the questioning just a little bit, just because you've mentioned um, teaching in these, you know, in Decatur, Champaign, 
um, other places. Edwardsville. Edwardsville, right? Exactly. In Chicago for time. No. UIUC. No. Oh, I'm no, thinking. UIUC. No, yeah, in Urbana-Champaign. Yeah, I'm not UIC. Um, anyways, I guess what I want to ask you, just, just building off what we've just been talking about here, is how has, has, has instructing or teaching other writers informed your writing at all? Has it shaped it or changed it and anything that you do about your process or uh anything that you do with uh I guess genre or form you know i i i assume so uh one example is when i was getting finishing my phd at u of i uh computers entered the building uh when I say computers, I mean a bank of computers they put in a particular room and they would say to themselves, okay, what can we do with these? And so they said, okay, let's target all of the students taking freshman composition who have almost tested out, I'll make up a number here, let's say. they, they and I am making this number up. Uh, let's say they get the ones at if they hit a 28 on their ACT in English, they don't have to take freshman rep. But we'll grab the people who have a 26 and 27, and we'll put them in a computer-assisted composition class. I had seniority. I was in probably my last year or so as a PhD student. And, and I had a good teaching record, and so they came to me and said, hey, do you want to teach this class? And I said, sure. I didn't even know how to turn a computer on. And so I went into the classroom. I had 18 students sitting there, huge space, all these computers. And I taught long enough that I knew I could handle it. I just looked for the, for the kids who, who wanted to turn things on and knew how to turn things on and knew how to run computers, you know, get them involved in teaching me. So I was teaching them, they were teaching me. You got ahead of your time there. And then I discovered the most shocking thing to me, and again, this probably feeds, this is well before my counting syllables. If my, when my wife hears this, she'll be rolling her eyes because this is the woman who had to endure me counting <laughs> syllables on my knees and has, to, has lived with me now for 25 years and has to, to deal with my idiosyncrasies. But I looked down, there was a thing that said word count. And I was never, uh, I would always tell my students, I said, look, I'm not great at thesis, thesis statements. I'm really good at sentences. And I'm really good at, uh, well, let's just simplify it. I'm going to be much better at the sentence than I am at argument. So I'm going to teach, I would tell my students this, I'm going to teach my strengths in this particular computer-assisted classroom with all these kids who almost tested out of freshman composition. And I said, I'm going to, I don't, I'm not going to ask for a thesis statement in your papers. What I'm going to do, because I've just noticed word count, I see this function called word count. And I would say, so we're going to read two or three essays about a subject and I want you to write an essay. I'm not gonna tell you what it's about. I don't really care about the thesis statement. I want you to do what I think most of the essays I seem to be reading 
do, and I'm not talking about literary scholarship, but magazine articles, which are often well-written, mm -hmm. I want you to just start, start in a yard. You can wander around town, but I want you back in the yard by dark when the essay's over. That's all I'm asking. I don't want an opening paragraph that wastes my time and a concluding paragraph that wastes my time. I don't want a five-paragraph essay that just keeps restating and restating. I want you to think like a writer, and I want to give you that freedom. But in exchange, and they'd look at me, and I'd say, I want a 783-word essay, and I want there to be one sentence that's 74 words long, followed by a six-word sentence. And they would go. Their jaws would drop. And I'd say, because I can see word count. And they would say, can you, what, are you serious? And I'd say, yeah, and I mean, when I say, I'm gonna be able to tell if you've done, they say, what are the numbers again? I say, I don't know, I forgot. Okay, I want an 813 word essay. Oh, no. And I want a 67 word sentence followed by a three word sentence. And I want, and I want the sentences to be street legal. I don't want them to be comma splices, I want, because I'm a stickler about, because at SIUE, down on the first floor in my day, was the writer's workshop. And in my second year, I had, again, enough seniority, I somehow was paid money to work in the summer, evenings in the summer in the writer's workshop, to which nobody showed up. Almost nobody. And while sitting there, there was a book, a thin book, called The Comma. And I sat there and read, cover to cover, this thin book called The Comma, with every comma rule. And it became the way I, a working class boy with no confidence in school, it helped my learning sentences, right? And I became very sort of rule bound, I, you know, about comma rules, let's say. And, and the way they, they made us as graduate students at SIUE back in the day, we had great graphic folders, and we were not allowed to give the students a grade higher than a, if they had one major sentence there, they, the highest grade was a C. Wow. If they had two, we had to flunk them. That didn't mean that's what happened in class. If students took a grammar exam, and if they flunked it, you were not supposed to pass them for the semester unless you could prove their writing was good enough. So I grew up in that kind of pleased culture, and I read this thing called the comma, you know, and, and now I'm going to, I forget even what we were talking about. Uh, oh, back to my students. So I, now I'm at U of I, I'm getting my PhD. I know, I know rules inside and out. I tell my students, I'm, I can teach them. I, I'm a sheet musician, but I have street skills in the, in the, through voice. And ideally, they're both, they can be both street musician and sheet musician. And street... Would be would be simply voice, uh, not constructed by artificial paragraph number of paragraphs. But we're going to do it by word count. Now, some of these students, I got the best writing I've ever gotten, ever in, in composition classes was from some of these students who would take me up on it, and I uh, now. Of course, it's exceedingly difficult for them to figure out how to write a 63-word sentence followed by a three-word sentence. So I would 
walk them through, you know, my best friends are, my best friends are, okay, that's four words, you need 59 friends. <laughs> or 58 if you want to use and. Right. And we would joke, we would play with sentences that's and throw funny. sentences. And, and with some of them, it just made for, spec- it was liberating. Because I didn't worry about a thesis statement because I wasn't any good at it. I proved that in literary scholarship that I wasn't very good at, good at it. But we would grow their voice, grow their technical skills, and this was just me. This is just what I did. Nobody was watching me because it was a brand new course. And so there's an example, I think, of how uh, it became easy for me. This was probably... 1990, it became easy for me when I sat down in 95 to write those poems and I thought about syllables. It became easy for me when I sat down and somebody said, your boy, we would, you know, almost almost had a commissioned essay about how I wrote my dissertation based on a proposal in a letter to a, to a, for literary scholarship. It was easy for me because my sentence skills were so uh, refined and it all began at SIUE with that great graphic folder with the intense emphasis police, you know, I was raised to be a Doberman Pinscher, really, a police dog here at SIUE, but it, I don't know what it did for the students. It may have ruined them, but it, it liberated me. And then word count on computers yeah. made it possible. And so then I began bending sentences and playing with them, because I would say to myself, you know, I, I might say to myself, okay, write a write a, a, a long sentence. And then I'd go back and count words, or my wife would say, you know, I count everything. It's, it's but it's, it's helped me, <laughs> and probably constrained me in some ways also. So therefore, I can't go into a fiction project very hard for me to go into a fiction project of discovery. Like, I'm going to write toward what it is. It's too much. Yeah, it's sort I, of... I, I got to control at a micro level. Yeah, at least, yeah, to, to some extent, right? Um, yeah, and I'm sure all of those sort of philosophies were reinforced when you were sitting there reading these great essays from your students. You know, I'm, I'm holding it. I know that our sure. listeners can't see me open right. up a book, <laughs> fake book here, but... Um, but see, yeah, students... students discovering that uh, the five-paragraph essay, which was dominated the high school teaching in Illinois, maybe it still does, I don't know, but the five-paragraph essay was not the only way mm-hmm. to grow a writer. Yeah. Uh, there are other ways to grow. Right, and almost to get out of your own head, too. It's like that idea of the, the daunting thesis statement and sort of um, some of the skills that maybe we teach to, or I teach to now at SIUE in, in 101 and 102, um, I feel Is that like... basic writing? 101 Yes, yeah, it's argument, it's rhetoric, it's, okay. um, it's persuasive writing, uh, comp, but uh, I feel like the best, sometimes I get some of the best stuff when it's not a formalized assignment, you know, it's more of a sure. free write or... Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, when you told those students thesis statement not necessary I feel like that was probably opened up a few things for them and they were well, able to it, yeah. it was because of the, it was because of the, the freedom I had no right. one was watching me it was in the basement of the English building and I was a brand new course and I saw word count 
And word counts. It's a beautiful thing. That's right. Cool. Well, um, before you go, I wanted to, to ask you one more thing. Yeah. Um, and I know you mentioned uh, your forthcoming book, Bruise Noise by Stephen F. Austin. Bruise Songs. Excuse me. I misspoke. Bruise right. Songs, um, which will be available. We're recording this right now, mid-January, but it'll be available in February 2020. Right here. Right here. Stephen F. Austin University Press. So definitely, yeah, I wanted to plug that again. My mistake on the uh, title, Bruise Songs. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I, we had your good friend and colleague, David Wright, on the show back in the fall uh, he gave a great interview, um, and one thing that we didn't get to was a project you both do together. I don't know if you want to talk about that or any other creative endeavors you have going on, but one thing I do before I cut it every time is just ask the guest if they have anything else that they just want to share. So I, I thought of that, but anything really that you'd like to... Well, uh, I guess Bruce songs, when it I, I, every time I've written poems that end up in a manuscript that's going to be published, I have always said, I'm done as a poet. I'm never going to write another poem. Uh, I've got to get this book published. And so I haven't. I'm not even thinking about any poems. It doesn't mean I'm not going to return. But as far as I'm concerned, I, I feel like I've done everything I can do now that I've moved into open form with this book. So if I return to writing uh, with any kind of clear plan, it won't be off of what David Wright and I write together. It's what, if we do anything together, it's we have lunches, uh, you know, that it might involve a, a liquor, and we, we talk about our lives, and. Uh, and I use portions of his life for a series I write called Black Guy, Bald Guy, um, which I talk about, and you can find online, go use my name and look up, and what you know, maybe you know better than I do, Late Night, Last Books, I tell the story there, of uh, I have a shaved head, I'm a white guy with a shaved head, and I'm in the undergraduate advising office, and not David, but a guy who became a friend uh, named Rashid, is in the office looking for somebody. We don't know each other, but we've been around each other quite often, and he says to me as he's leaving the room, uh, where's so-and-so? And I say, she'll be right back, and he says, thanks, bald guy, and leaves the room. And I leap from my desk without thinking, run to the door, He's going down the stairs, and I, I said, if I'm bald guy, who are you? And he said, black guy. And I said, thought to myself, thank you, and I went back to my office, and I started writing these odd little bits of fiction, and uh, there are many of them. Right now, they're sitting on my website. I may take them off. They've all been published. Uh, every time I write one, I usually find a place that will publish it. Some people don't get it. I'll get an editor that will say, you know, this is really good, but why don't you give these characters real names? And I'll think, no, I'm, you don't get what I'm doing, man. Right. right? Yeah, and and can point. I, a white guy, write? And this is what David and I talk about. And he, he pushes me to keep going. Uh, you know, and he's, you can find an essay of his at my website where he 
he writes about this, I think it was in the Chronicle, about uh, his own encouraging his white students to write about race and to, to take those risks. And it's a difficult project. I don't know. I might have enough stuff now that it could be a collection. At one time, I was going to try to get it to adhere like a novel. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to retire in three more semesters from U of I. And uh, I still have a daughter who's 14 who plays sports, and I'm active as a dad. Uh, I don't have that same, when I, we had four young daughters, I was writing every time I had a chance. Now that it's opening up, I have plenty of chances to write, but I'm slowing down. And uh, something has to interest me, mm -hmm. you know? Mm. So Bruce songs interest me, interest me now. Uh, maybe I'll finish Black Eye Bald Guy next. Maybe I'll write an essay about your podcast. <laughs> Well, that would be that would be something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I saw on your what website. What about S I U E? Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, the interview, we're we're sitting at um, a little over an hour right now, so wow. I feel like um, you have a lot of editing to do. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, I think there's a few few key phrases I, I maybe want to pull out of here and and I don't know, write them down somewhere, but just thank you so much for being generous with your time and for uh, coming, to, coming to speak with, well, with me thanks today. for bringing me home. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Steve's new book, Brew Songs, will be available this week, February 2nd and is currently available for pre-order from Amazon and Stephen F. Austin University Press. A link is available in the show notes. Up next on Writers in the World is a special episode of Lessons from Faculty. Tune in next Monday as I host director of the MFA at SIUE, Professor Jeff Schmidt.